I think there are lessons that America and other countries can learn from the Germans. The Germans didn't address their past perfectly. They didn't even do it willingly for a long time. It was a long, slow process. And I think that may be the most important lesson that we have to learn from them. But I still think Germany did something absolutely historically unique. This is a quote by Susan Neiman from an interview at foreignpolicy.com. Welcome to Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. In today's episode, Gina Anderson welcomes you to the podcast version of a Zoom talk with Susan Neiman, moderated by Erin Hart, learning from the Germans. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us today. I'm Gina Anderson, Executive Director of the Germanic American Institute, and I would like to welcome you to today's virtual discussion with Susan Neiman, author of Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. For those of you who are joining uh, a Germanic American Institute event for the first time, let me just say a few quick words about our organization. The GAI is a nonprofit, and we're located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Our mission is to connect people to a broader world through German language and culture. We host a wide range of cultural events and language classes and invite you to learn more at our website, gaimn.org. And now I am so happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Susan Neiman. Dr. Neiman is the director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and she studied philosophy at Harvard and at the Freie Universität Berlin and was professor of philosophy at Yale and Tel Aviv University. She is the author of Slow Fire, Jewish Notes from Berlin, The Unity of Reason, Rereading Kant, Evil in Modern Thought, Fremde Zehen Anders, Moral Clarity, A Guide for Grown-Up Idealists, Why Grow Up, Widerstand der Vernunft, Ein Manifest in Postfaktischen Zeiten, and most recently, learning from the Germans, race, and the memory of evil. Thank you again for joining us. We are so delighted to have Susan with us today. And now I will turn the microphone over to Erin Hart to open our discussion. Dr. Schoen. Thank you, Gina. And thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, as Gina mentioned, uh, this event uh, is more of a discussion rather than a formal presentation. Uh, obviously, this book covers a lot of important topics that are very timely and that we are all very interested in. So uh, I invite you to ask questions in the chat. Unfortunately, we probably won't get to all of the questions, uh, but I will do my best to uh, get to as many and pull together as many as possible. Uh, Dr. Nyman, I'd like to start uh, by um, asking you how this book came about. Um, I understood from the book that you started writing an article and that it grew into a larger project. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how your book grew uh, over the years that you Yeah, were well, it actually goes back <clears throat> further. I first came to Berlin in 1982 as a Fulbright fellow thinking I was going to stay for a year and go back. And what actually fascinated me almost the moment I came here was this whole notion of Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. For those who don't know German, I translate that as working through the past or working off the past. And uh, really 
from the very beginning, I made the comparison to what people were doing in Berlin, not everywhere in Germany, that's for sure, and not even everywhere in Berlin, but um, large numbers of grassroots groups, artists, intellectuals, church groups were thinking and talking about it and doing things to commemorate. It was just before the 50th anniversary of the Nazi takeover to power. And I said at that time, um, how come we stopped talking about the Vietnam War after it was over? And why did we never have a national discussion about Hiroshima? So I've been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. And yes, uh, it is true that I wrote uh, an article when I was, I mean, I was asked to give a lecture and I was thinking about this stuff. It actually um, moved uh, or not moved, yeah, moved um, uh, by Quentin Tarantino's movie. And I'm not a Tarantino fan at all, um, but Django Unchained really um, uh, blew me away and also blew away one of my daughters with whom I saw it at the time when it came out in 2014, because I, I, my daughter turned to me and said, how are the Americans gonna get this? They're not going to get all the German references. Um, that is the first movie that I can remember Hollywood making in which the good guy is played by a German and um, you know, sort of German culture is contrasted with the, you know, deep south in slavery times. <laughs> so I, uh, I wrote a piece kind of focusing around that and forgot about it entirely for a good, uh, somebody wanted to put it on the internet. Fine, you can put it on the internet. Um, and I forgot about it entirely until um, President Obama gave his incredible speech uh, the eulogy for the nine churchgoers who were murdered in Charleston. That speech was historically very important. I, I date that as the beginning of an American because it was the first time that a national figure, much less a president, said, we're not going to uh, get rid of violence in the present until we confront the violence of the past. And listening to that speech, I thought, gosh, I have been thinking about the way the Germans have been doing it for uh, decades. Maybe this is something uh, that uh, there's something going on in the States that I hope I can contribute to. And then at the same time, this article that I had forgotten about, um, you know, was read by someone in Mississippi who invited me to um, come and give a talk in Mississippi. And while I was thinking about writing a book, the title was Immediate, Learning from the Germans. Um, I certainly didn't want to preach from abroad. I wanted to spend more time in the States uh, looking at the ways in which those people who are trying to come up with a, a better, truer version of our history and working on raci uh, racial reconciliation um, so I, um, I wound up in Mississippi, uh, long story short, <laughs> not because I should say, and I, you're in Minnesota, which many of us are watching with, um, uh, deep concern and pain at the moment, even on the other side of the world, 
so I certainly don't think that racism is only a problem in the deep south, but focusing on the deep south. Um, in fact, I piece, I think, today in the New York Times saying that it's e by a Minnesotan uh, saying that it's easier to think that Minnesotans are nice and they don't have racial problems because it doesn't get talked about. Um, in the Deep South, it does get talked about. It's all out there. And so I spent the better part of a year um, over a couple of visits um, interviewing people, uh, a huge variety of people from civil rights icons like James Meredith or contemporary um, icon, Brian Stevenson, who built the National Lynching Memorial, but also, you know, quite different kinds of people. And I also interviewed a lot of people in Germany, both people who were involved in the process of Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung and um, a number of other people who'd been affected by it. So the book is very much written in many voices. That was important to me to, um, you know, first of all, have my own voice and my own experience, my own reflections in there, but also not to dominate the conversation, to make sure that contrasting voices were, uh, and contrasting stories were involved as well. Yeah, I would say that that helps make the book so readable. I think sometimes people get afraid of history books or think that this might be a history book. And to me, this the book seems very alive, that you really do tell the backstory about everyone that you interview. Um, so I, I highly recommend that our audience uh, that re reads through the book. Um, I, I, I like books that are alive and I, I, that's what I try to write, but I should point out, I'm not a historian. I'm actually, tra I was trained as a philosopher. And um, of course, people are often more put off by that than even by historians. But I'm the kind of philosopher who believes that everybody asks philosophical questions and that that can be made clear virtually to any thinking person. Um, and you are able to mention some philosophers in your book without making it too scary um, and helping us understand those phrases. Um, so you, you, you mentioned Minnesota, and I definitely want to circle back to um, what's happening in our community right now and um, the issues that we're dealing with. But I wanted to take it a step back for our audience, and um, I was hoping that you could give us an overview of what Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, uh, what that looked like in Germany. Um, I know that's a big question, um, but how did, how did it start and when did it start? Uh, in the book, you talk about how the Germans went from seeing themselves as the biggest victims after World War II. Uh, how did they go on this journey from victimhood to acknowledging guilt and their role um, in committing the crimes during the Holocaust? Well, first of all, one has to say it took the West Germans a very long time, I would say 40 years after the war. That's the first important thing to remember. The second important thing to remember is there were two Germanys and they did it very differently. Um, East Germany uh, was led by people who had been 
were communists, and as communists who were the first victims of Nazi terror, they spent the war either in uh, concentration camps or in exile. And so they were deeply committed anti-fascists. And when they came back to lead their half of the country, uh, they made it very clear, first of all, that more Nazis were tried, brought to justice, taken out of public office, lesson plans were revised, children had to um, learn about the war, learn about Nazi crimes, they renovated concentration camps, and uh, every child at some point in their school years went to Buchenwald. Now, this is not to say, this has been a controversial part of the book, this is not to say that the East Germans did everything right, they did not, and they also instrumentalized their anti-fascism in uh, a number of ways. Nevertheless, what's often forgotten, including in Germany today, is that they were way ahead of the West with the sole, pretty almost sole exception of Konrad Adenauer, who was not a Nazi. Um, almost everybody in government and civil service had either been a Nazi or had cooperated uh, in, in different ways with the Nazis. And there was a, one philosopher, one German philosopher called it communicative silence. There was a um, sometimes spoken and sometimes unspoken decision that West Germany was not going to talk about these matters. They paid some reparations towards Holocaust victims and towards the state of Israel, but there was a, an unspoken bargain. Uh, if we pay up, we don't have to do any Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. Um, people that I know who went to school in those years say history just stopped in 1933. It was barely, if at all, discussed. I mean, it depended on the individual teacher and the individual state. But what you had were groups of people, um, church groups, intellectuals, artists, who round about the end of the 50s began to insist that Germany face up to the fact that actually, uh, yes, it was, you know, it suffered during the war and they were still coming out of, everybody had uh, ruins, uh, you know, cities were bombed to smithereens, but that actually the real victims or the worst victims were elsewhere and it was the Germans' fault. and and. Uh, What's interesting about this, I do sometimes get asked, was there one thing? No, there wasn't one thing, which in a certain sense is hopeful. And I think uh, also for our own as Americans efforts in these directions, uh, I don't think one thing can actually do it. Um, but there were, there was information that got spread. There were, the Eichmann trial was more important outside of Germany than within Germany, although it did impress some people and it was of course broadcast. The Auschwitz trials a year later were very important for changing German consciousness. I think travel for the generation that was born either during or just after the war was terribly important that they realized how they were actually viewed by their European neighbors. And all of this 
together produced a climate that at least briefly could elect Willy Brandt, although it's very important, Willy Brandt is always a hero uh, abroad and not many people abroad know that precisely the things that made him a good German in our eyes, that is the fact that he, as a social Democrat, went into exile uh, almost as soon as the Nazis took power and uh, was deeply opposed to them, that that was actually used against him as a campaign slogan by Konrad Adenauer in 1962. So, um, and the his kneeling at the memorial in the Warsaw Ghetto was not something that most of his compatriots thought was a good thing. So you had this, you had the small window with Willy Brandt, but it uh, it grew into a wave with a combination of literature, film, and also, even though I they dismissed it as communist propaganda. I think the fact that East Germany continued to point out how many German, uh, West German officials had Nazi pasts made it, had an impact. I, I just recently read a book, uh, East Germany tried uh, an absentia, of course, Adenauer's right-hand man, Hans Globke, a very important figure in the early Federal Republic and sentenced him in absentia to life in prison. Now, of course, that didn't happen. But what's interesting is that a lot of the West German press followed the trial and said, well, actually, he should resign. You know, <laughs> prison's one thing, but he should resign. So, so it had an impact. Um, and all of those things pushed together did force uh, an important, important acknowledgement that Germans needed to see themselves as perpetrators and not as victims and certainly not as heroes. I should say that I do not believe this process is complete at all. I talk about that to some degree in the last chapter of the book. I would make that even stronger today, actually, um, you know, due to some controversies, uh, political controversies that I've become involved in, in the last year. I think that Germans, by and large, certainly 80% of them feel a genuine shame and regret for the crimes of their parents and grandparents. That doesn't mean, first of all, that they, that they extend in a way that it needs to be extended, um, Nazi crimes to racism in general, and not simply to anti-Semitism. And that's a problem that people of color and others in Germany are dealing with today. It's also not clear that they know what to do with real Jews. The, um, <laughs> been saying that the, the, the thing that all Germans know about Jews is we killed them. But that's a beginning. <laughs> it's not, and I think there's often still a certain uncomfortableness, not nearly as bad as it was in the 80s when I first came here, 
but an uncomfortableness in dealing with a live and intense Jewish community, which is growing here. So it's fastest growing uh, Jewish community in Europe, by the way. Yeah, you also uh, discussed that in the book um, and uh, the growing Israeli community in, in Berlin as well, I believe. Um, thank you for that. Um, in the, uh, I think in the book, you also mention um, the Wehrmacht exhibit yes. um, as uh, playing a big role, I think in both East and West Germany. And you'll have to correct me if I'm not remembering correctly. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the, the Wehrmacht exhibit and what um, what was so important in, in, in that exhibit and consciousness raising in Germany? So the Wehrmacht, for people who don't know, was about 19 million men strong. And there was a draft on. The only way to get out of uh, the draft was to do something worse, like uh, become a concentration camp guard. So everyone had uh, family members, usually multiple male family members who served in the Wehrmacht and had to, whether or not they sympathized with the Nazis or not. The Wehrmacht exhibit was opened in 1995 by a private institution, the Hamburger Institute for Sozialforschung, as a contribution to the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. And what they brought into the exhibit was not something that would have surprised historians, which is why the, uh, the people who did the exhibit were surprised at the reaction. What they simply did was to argue that the Wehrmacht was a criminal institution that regularly killed civilians um, in fairly horrible ways. They did not focus on the Holocaust. They focused on the murder of 14 million Slavic civilians who were killed um, by the Wehrmacht in the East. Um, and this was for West Germans a shock because they, many of them, surprisingly enough, in 1995, were still holding tight to the idea that, well, the problems with the Nazis were a few bad apples in the SS, but my father, grandfather, was just defending his country. And the exhibit was shown in 33 different cities. Uh, in one place, it was firebombed. In other places, there were demonstrations against it uh, with uh, signs saying, Opa war kein Verbrecher, you know, or my, 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 my grandfather was a hero. Um, so it, it did shake up West Germany. It did not shake up East Germany at all. East Germans have told me this, we knew this from, from the beginning. This was, this was perfectly clear. First of all, um, the crimes in the East and not just the murder of Jews were always uh, part of what East Germans had learned and, and they certainly learned about the Wehrmacht. But for the West, it was quite an important um, uh, you know, moment. I mean, we can, I'm trying to go through these things as quickly as possible, just so that people will get to ask questions if they want to. Um, you could, if you were going on for a long time, you could say, well, this is a landmark 
in you know there are other landmarks in in the story but i think the most important thing to remember is there were lots of landmarks it wasn't just one yeah um, i'd like to take one second to uh encourage our 75 participants um to enter a question uh in the written chat i'm happy to uh to uh read that for for susan um otherwise you'll be subjected to to what i find interesting about the book um so uh, I want to make sure that we have um, a moment to talk, uh, uh, well, a few moments to talk about memorials and monuments. Um, and obviously that's, uh, that's something that the United States has a lot to work on. Um, could you talk a little bit about the monuments in Germany? Um, I actually mentioned to a friend of mine this morning that there are no, um, public monuments to Hitler and the Nazis in Germany anymore. And he was shocked. He had no idea. Uh, yeah, so if, if you could um, sort of compare and contrast a little bit the, the monument scene uh, in Germany and the United States and you know, what these monuments represent and wh why is that important? So first of all, as soon as you write something like that down, somebody sends you a letter and says, well, there's one in my... So there are a couple, with one exception, they're very out of the public eye. They're certainly not in major places. There are none whatsoever in Berlin. Part of that, of course, is thanks to the fact that the Third Reich lasted 12 years and there wasn't a huge amount of time to build monuments. What there were were lots of swastikas on public buildings. There were lots of Adolf Hitler, Straßen, you know, practically in every town. And the Allies banned all that. All right. That was a decision of the Allies to say whatever there is left, um, you know, uh, is is forbidden. Once again, in East Germany, they began to build some monuments to um, the victims, but more importantly, to resistance heroes. That was, was very important in East Germany to focus on heroes rather than victims, which is an interesting, um, it's an interesting perspective. But um, what you see when you go to Berlin today, and I focus on Berlin just because there are nearly 500 monuments in Berlin, and that's not counting all the stumbling stones, which I'll describe in a second. Um, you know, there are more in Berlin, of course, than the rest of the country. But what you see are a quite interesting and often artistically very impressive variety of monuments to different victims, monuments to some of the few heroes that there were. Uh, you have this project called the Stumbling Stones, which is absolutely brilliant. It was privately started by an artist, Gunta Demnig, to put little brass plaques about this big uh, in front of the last freely chosen homes of people, mostly Jews, but not only Jews, who were later deported and murdered. And each stone has a the name, the date of birth, and the date of deportation and death, if it's known. And there are thousands of them. And what's so important, I think, about those memorials is that they bring home the fact 
The terror started right where you live. This is not only something that happened off in Poland or you know, that you uh, mourn at one central monument. You should not forget that this began as a part of ordinary life and other people not standing up for uh, their neighbors. Uh, Brian Stevenson was extremely influenced by the Stumbling Stones and has incorporated ba the basic idea into his lynching memorial, which hasn't been entirely fulfilled yet, but the lynching memorial is just opened a couple of years ago. Um, so that, of course, is entirely different. There is, by the way, um, a museum for bad monuments. As I said, there weren't all that many Nazi monuments, but there were certainly a number of militaristic Prussian monuments from the First World War that were taken down. And they're all in this museum in Spandau where uh, they're taken off the pedestal and they're kind of mixed up. Children are encouraged to climb on them. You're supposed to sort of deconstruct them as you walk through the, uh, the actual museum. But uh, it's, it's very hard to walk through Berlin without being struck by one interesting monument or another. And I think this is, an ex you know, a reproach to people who say, oh, if we tear down our monuments in America, we'll forget our history. No, you won't. <laughs> and, you know, Germans have not forgotten their history, not by a long shot. And the one of the points I make, which I think is so important in thinking about the monuments, monuments are not about history. We don't memorialize every bit of our history. We build monuments to men and women whose lives embodied the values that we want our communities to have. And, you know, when people start saying it's our heritage, it's our history, you have to say, well, well <laughs> no. <laughs> did, you, did you put up a monument to your uh, Aunt Gertrude? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> you know, those were the Confederate memorials were put up and of course, this is something that I believe all of us learned in the last five or six years. I didn't know it before that. And I grew up in the Deep South. I thought the memorials went up right after the Civil War. And you figured, OK, somebody's remembering their son or their father or their husband who fell. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were put up in two distinct periods where white supremacy was on the rise and where people were worried about the civil rights movement. And as soon as you know that, it seems to me, you, you, know, you have an answer to the people who are worried about uh, doing away with our history. There are lots of ways to remember history. One of the things that I think is extremely important when we think about monuments in the US is not just who we take down, because I basically think uh, the Confederate monuments need to go. Um, there's just, uh, I, if, if I were, if this were a country where I would have to walk past, uh, you know, Nazis in uniform or on horseback or whatever, 
I doubt that I would have come back here. I really wouldn't have. And I, I think it's, again, it's not just uh, an offense to black people, it's giving all of us the wrong message about what this country values. And, you know, having fought a war to uh, defeat the Confederacy and end slavery, it's quite bizarre that we're still glorifying the people who fought on the other side. But I think it's at least as important for us in, and I hope this would take place in different communities, to think about who we want to put in the place of the old memorials. There are lots of heroes. I do think people need heroes. Uh, they don't need to be military heroes. In fact, it would be nice if we could have more non-military heroes, but there are plenty of them. And those discussions need to be going on along with the question of, um, you know, when are we going to find, finally take down the Confederate statues in Virginia and elsewhere? They're not just in the South, once again. I, I, we have a question from one of our audience members um, that goes back to this issue of, of what happens in communities and um, how, you know, white and communities of color can come together and talk about racism and reconciliation. Um, so there's the question is, what sort of scripts would you advise to get these conversations going? And that makes me think about the time you spent at the Winter Institute and how um, the conversations went that you witnessed. Um, so if you could address that, that'd be great. Look, uh, I've been quite upset this week, frankly. Um, and I was even more upset when I saw the front page of the New York Times this morning, which said that um, during the trial of uh, Derek Chauvin, three people a day have been killed by police violence. Not all of them, but the majority of them are African-American um, or people of color. I think the first thing that white people need to do is stand up for Black Lives Matter. We did it last summer. And then, you know, the... Um, there have been some studies now that more than half of the demonstrators last summer were white people. And then the Republicans did a pretty good job trying to win the election by doing a repeat of Richard Nixon and talking about law and order and, and you know, focusing on the couple of cases where property was vandalized. Um, I feel like there is nothing more important right now for white people to do than to stand up and say, you know what white privilege is? I never had to give my children the talk. I've got three, they're grown up. I know everybody who has children knows you have all kinds of worries for your children. And, you know, anything could happen to them, um, falling with the wrong crowd, get hit by a drunk driver, God knows what. Um, that's something I never had to worry about. And it seems to me that the first step needs to come from white people in this moment where, does, 
despite the fact that Black Lives Matter was the largest numerically social movement um, in US history, Black people are still being killed at traffic stops or pepper sprayed at traffic stops or uh, whatever, uh, children. So it, you know, it, it seems to me that this is something, this would be a first step that white people who are concerned about racial reconciliation, I don't know, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I'm sort of thinking on my feet. I could imagine if I were in the States, I would almost do a mother to mother conversation, you know, get groups of white mothers. Um, first of all, standing out in public, it is demonstrations are still important. I still occasionally go to demonstrations um, and it matters to put yourself on the street, but it, you know, also matters to try and set up groups. I mean, not to, I, I'm not, I'm, there, there's one tone, there's the Robin D'Angelo kind of, we're all miserable sinners and anybody who's white is by virtue, by virtue a racist and all we can do is beat our breasts and apologize. I think that's not the right way to go. And I frankly don't think African-Americans particularly appreciate it, but I think, you know, an outreach in, uh, in this moment, which is really a precarious moment, would be the first place to start. Um, you know, and, and I have seen these groups work. It sounds hokey, but I, I, did spend some time, uh, you know, with groups that were sort of about half black, half white, where people talk about racism, talk about their own experiences of race. They start slow. They start exchanging stories of commonalities, which is very important to build trust on all sides. And then they can talk about the harder, the harder questions. But at this moment in American history, I think it's up to white people to do outreach in that way. It reminds me of or one thing I've been thinking about is when um, I think it's Patrick Weems from the um, Emmett Till Interpretive Center, mm -hmm. who says um, you can't have reconciliation without justice. Uh, do you agree with Patrick? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, I don't know why any group that's been persecuted should want to reconcile with the persecutors um, or the children of the persecutors, <laughs> unless there's first of all been truth and with truth, some attempts at justice. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna turn to another question from our audience. Um, what would you say to the older German Americans who seem to be suffering from Holocaust fatigue, uh, who have an attitude of, this is long gone into our past and we need to move on? 
You know, it really depends on who they are. And I'm not going to answer that question straight. Um, the Bible says the, um, the sins of the fathers will be visited on the children for three or four generations. That seems to me actually quite, um, you know, reasonable because the repercussions go on. They really do. Um, I, I mean, I'm just, uh, look, there's a right-wing party in Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland, the AfD, which also says, you know, enough with the Holocaust already. And that's a serious problem. Now, again, it, it depends both on who the Germans are and how the Holocaust is being talked about. If the Holocaust is being talked about as this is an absolutely unique thing in history that the Germans did, you know, and the Germans were monsters, which I fear is often the way it is talked about in the United States, that's a problem. Um, it's very often talked about with no knowledge of German history. I mean, you know, most Americans will have kind of images, gas chamber, cattle car, but very little information about, uh, you know, how the Nazis came to power and in particular, what happened after the war and how many attempts slowly, fitfully, but indeed in the end, serious attempts were actually made um, to bring some justice and bring some reconciliation into the world. I am one of those people who believes that anti-Semitism is a form of racism in general and that it can happen and does happen in many places even if the Holocaust was the most striking example of murderous racism that we know in history. So um, I, I hope this is helpful. I've said that I can't answer. I mean, I, I, I can't say yeah, yeah or no without knowing exactly what's being said. I do believe that it's important to talk about particularities and to talk about, um, what, what's moving people either to, I mean, look, let's be honest. It is, and I say this in the book, the Holocaust is sometimes used in America and by no means only by Jews uh, at all. It's sometimes used as a way of saying, we know what evil is. It's putting people in, in cattle cars and gassing them. And therefore, we can focus on that and not focus on any other forms of evil. And that's a problem if it's being done like that. Okay. So we had um, a couple of questions about modern Germany. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we cannot travel to Germany right now. But, um, you know, a lot of us have been, you know, we're very affected and following the news about uh, Angela Merkel's decision to um, except refugees, the very large number of refugees in 2015 from, I believe, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Um, you mentioned the Willkommenskultur uh, in your book. Um, what do things look like in Germany now? And um, how has anti-Semitism been 
affected by perhaps anti-Muslim um, or anti-refugee and immigrant sentiment in modern in Germany today? It is sometimes alleged, particularly by the right-wing party, which even tried to recruit me with uh, Islamophobia. Um, it's sometimes said the immigrants are bringing anti-Semitism into the country. There has been a serious study, 96% of all of the anti-Semitic incidents or crimes in the last uh, five years were done by right-wing Germans. So um, this is just not true. The majority of the immigrants or refugees who came in 2015 and the beginning of 2016 are successfully integrated, speak German. Um, most of them have jobs or in some kind of training program or school training program to get jobs. So it's been a pretty successful integration of the refugees, which nevertheless did contribute to the rise of the IFD, which is a racist right-wing party that you know, worries about German purity and wants uh, as few foreigners as possible. So, um, you know, we have not solved the refugee problem. Merkel, as is her want, um, you know, sort of foisted it off and did a rather unpleasant deal with Turkey, which nobody talks about very much, that Turkey would prevent uh, refugees from coming here so that Europe wouldn't have to worry about them. It's not a settled problem. However, I have to point out that, um, you know, if the United States were to do what Germany did in 2015, we would have had to uh, take in 5 million refugees at once on a fraction of the land mass. So it was a generous gesture and it was very much supported by broad scale uh, swathes of the population. And it's still the case that the last polling data showed there are more Germans actively involved in uh, refugee integration than voted for the right-wing party. And when I say actively involved, these are people who are you know, giving their time to uh, give German lessons and help with the bureaucracy or play music or football with uh, children. It was really moving when uh, it happened in that September. Um, my son, who was uh, living in London at the time, uh, he's an adult, he came for a visit and uh, I, he's an artist. And I said, well, what would you like to do? You know, should we go, is there an exhibit you'd like to see or whatever? He said, can we do something for the refugees? So I said, okay. Um, so we bought as many, well, our first idea was simply to buy as many groceries. This was very early on. Uh, as many groceries as we could carry and try to bring them to different centers. And people said, we, have to, we don't need anything else. Everybody has been donating so generously that uh, you know, we don't need much more. So, and, and that is true, I know, even in, not just in Berlin, which has a large international population, but also in small towns, across the country. So um, that's been a good thing. Now that's, uh, you, there were several, there was another question. Sorry, I, I went on. What was the? 
What was the other question about contemporary Germany? The the anti-Muslim, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, excuse me, connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. That's, yeah, they're actually, um, <laughs> there are people who say it's my neighborhood. Um, there are more Palestinians and Israelis living in this neighborhood than anywhere else in the world. And it's one of the few places in the world, if not the best place in the world, where they can actually meet at a normal social level with, you know, without different laws pre preventing them from getting there. So um, it's not, this is not to say I've met them. Uh, Syrian refugees who told me that they were brought up with anti-Semitism and they had, you know, very, um, very one-sided pictures and they'd never met any Jews, but, um, you know, and, and, and there's work to be done there, but there are a number of organizations of Jewish Muslim organizations. There's uh, a, at least one major theater company that can, you know, puts on a lot of joint productions between Israelis and Palestinians and other Muslims. So um, it's uh, it's a work in progress, but I'm uh, I'm hopeful about that part of. Uh, there's a question here about uh, South Africa's truth and reconciliation process. Um, are there aspects of that process that uh, you have studied or that you might find or that we could find useful uh, to the United States? So. To my great regret, I've never been to South Africa, and I've read some things about that process. They're quite contradictory. There are a lot of South Africans who do not think that it was a success. And because I'm not an expert on it, I don't want to um, talk about what could and could not be brought to the US. Certainly what's true, but that goes back to your question about justice, Aaron, uh, there won't be reconciliation without truth. And, you know, that's going to be a process that will take us generations. It's starting. It started in the U.S. I would, again, date it to about six years ago. Um, but it's going to go on for quite a while because it will and does involve looking at the foundations of the country and the fact that we were welcomed by indigenous peoples initially, who we, in many cases, killed and robbed. And that was policy. And, you know, we are still not keeping treaties with native peoples. So those are all things that we're going to have to face. One thing that, that I wanted to ask you about is um, I went to a very um, a moving exhibit at the Deutsches Historisches Museum about uh, the German role in Südwest Africa and Namibia. Um, and I was just thinking about their working off the past related to their colonial history and their role and the, the massacre of 
I think the Herero and um, Nama tribes. Um, I believe there's discussions going on with reparations and, um, you know, some have even said that what Germany did uh, in Namibia was the first genocide of that of the century. But I wanted your thoughts on the Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung in regards to that chapter of German history. Um, are they are they doing it? So that chapter has really just been opened quite recently, um, but it's it's quite in focus of discussions um, and not just discussions, exhibits, and not just exhibits, but the whole concept of the Humboldt Forum, which is this gigantic museum, which was the Imperial Palace was rebuilt in the center of Berlin. And the funny thing is, well, it's now maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago that these discussions were going on. Why do we need to rebuild the Imperial Palace? Do we even have a function for it? A lot of people were against it. Um, the suggestion that was at the time thought to be politically correct was, well, we'll take all the collections of non-European art out of Dalam, which is way on, you know, out the city, uh, and we'll put them in the center of town and we'll bring them, you know, we'll, we'll confer upon them the equality with European art. And of course, some four years ago or something, uh, three years ago, even people began to realize uh, most of this stuff was stolen. And, <laughs> and so there are huge debates and discussions going on about um, how much to give back. Some people, some indigenous peoples have demanded things back from the collections. I think everything that was demanded will go. The question of reparations is not one that anybody wants to deal with, but it's on the table. Uh, there are people who refuse to set foot in the Humboldt Forum because they think the whole thing is a colonialist thought. So, so let me just say that that is all very much a work in progress that a lot of people are involved in right now. I have to say that I think Germany is already a, you know, a few steps further along in dealing with its colonial past than Britain, Belgium, Holland, France, um, precisely because Germany did have this experience of doing it with the Nazis. So, so they have the idea, whereas a year ago, uh, the Guardian did a poll that showed that only 19% of, um, of British citizens thought that there was anything wrong with the empire. And so, so they're moving more slowly. Those are questions, but um, it's, um, you know, Germany, again, is, uh, has some practice. We'll see how far it goes. It's, it's very much in flux right now. Well, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time, um, and we've been uh, talking for about an hour. Um, if there are any final questions uh, from the audience, I'd be happy to, um, to ask those for you. Um, otherwise, uh, 
Susan, I'm uh, just thinking about um, sort of a, a final note for our for our talk. Um, I believe you end the book, um, and I didn't get through it to the end the second time, but um, on a hopeful note. And so I wanted your thoughts on if you are feeling hopeful and um, you know, what, uh, what we can do you know, here at the GAI and in our community um, to help uplift voices um, and further reading that we could do. So I don't view hope as a feeling. I view it as a moral obligation. Um, I think that if we don't hope, we'll always be unable to act in order to make anything in our communities better. We will fall into cynicism or despair. So the question of how I'm feeling at the moment, I mean, some days I feel better and some days I feel others uh, differently. Some days I feel pretty down about the state of the world, but I don't, I, I make it kind of a rule not to speak in public and not to write unless, or not to publish, unless I can offer some kind of orientation, unless, you know, to say, look, there are enough people who write books that say the world is doomed and, um, you know, um, more yesterday than tomorrow. But uh, it, that strikes me as a deeply immoral way to go around in the world. So that's the first thing. Um, things you can do. I mean, I did mention, I, I, I really, at this particular moment in time, I think the constant murder of uh, Black people by, um, you know, representatives of the government is, has to be front and center. And whatever we can do about that is, uh, is absolutely, you know, the first order of business. As far as further reading, one thing, by the way, that this, I think Americans are better at than, than the Germans have been at, which is why Germans sometimes have um, problems dealing with uh, Jews who don't fit into a particular picture. Um, they, they don't they don't read enough they don't hear enough voices they don't see enough you know they're not enough films um americans you know you don't have american culture without african-american culture and i think people are more and more aware of that but i you know for anybody who hasn't read every single novel of tony morrison you should go out and read them you know um and one of the great things about Morrison, I mean, there are a number of great black writers, uh, you know, also in recent times. Um, she wasn't writing for a white audience. In fact, in some of her books, she deliberately, you don't know what race somebody is or not, you know? And I think trying to see the world through the eyes of different people is extraordinarily important. I, in, in many ways, I think popular culture is more significant than any sort of lesson plans. 
Um, so, you know, that's, um, I, you know, I mentioned Morrison because I've always loved Morrison. There are, of course, a lot of other, um, you know, wonderful African-American writers, but um, Baldwin, if you haven't read all of Baldwin is, you know, there are some people who just everything they wrote is, uh, is uh, terrific. Oh, and here's one more last suggestion that, um, that I've started to make when people ask me what they can do concretely to change Americans, you know, perceptions of our history, run for your school board. And if you're not prepared to run for your school board, find out who is running and support a good candidate because those are the people who control uh, what gets taught in American public schools. And, you know, the right figured that out 40 years ago that, you know, national elections are interesting, but it's very small local elections that actually have uh, an enormous amount of power and that's something that we need to be paying attention to. Uh, I'm going to show everyone your book. Uh, it is available on Amazon, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. And uh, Susan, I just want to thank you on behalf of the Germanic American Institute and um, everyone who listened today. I want to thank you for being with us, but also for the very important work that you do. Uh, I'm very glad that you came out of the ivory tower to um, to reach so many of us with your thoughts and your work. And we very much uh, look forward to, to your next work. Um, and thank you for, for all the speaking that you've done. Um, I know you've been very busy uh, around the country and around the world from your office in Berlin right now. Um, but, but thank you so much. Uh, this was really interesting and, and very meaningful for us, so. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Be well. And gosh, I hope um, I hope things look better in Minnesota. Mm -hmm.